Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's reading is Jude 1, 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Thanks, Mona. Hey, while you're grabbing a seat, I uh, want to say good morning to you. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and it's so good to be with you. I was thinking about this while Mona was reading scripture, uh, the spiritual moms in the room, and how uh, a lot of you guys maybe don't know this, but for, for years in my high school season, Mona and Andy Taylor just discipled me and poured into me and had me in their living room. And there's so many ways as we were singing today and I'm reflecting back on my story and just thinking about God's faithfulness to me and how Mona was such a big part of that and her husband Andy was such a big part of that. So man, happy Mother's Day to you guys. We can't say that enough to you. Uh, you deserve every bit of celebration today. And, and the ladies in the room that are spiritual moms, we celebrate you today as well. That is, uh, that's something that scripture actually values and honors as well. Uh, women who either are single or have chosen to be celibate for their life and are just life givers in every way. So if you're changing diapers or you're discipling people and you're, you're just, you're working hard as a mom, we are celebrating you today. So good to be with you. Um, we're going to be in the book of Jude today. So if you're new to the Bible, <clears throat> it's really easy to find. You can go all the way to the back it's near the very end. It's the second to the last book of your Bible. So uh, it's almost to Revelation. Go to Jude. If you don't have a Bible, then we actually have some underneath the chairs, and we'd love for you to take one of those as our gift to you, so feel free to do that. But I, I am excited to jump into Jude with, with you this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to just kind of let you know about a resource that I've found really, really helpful in preparation for this book. Um, this is uh, by one of my favorite Bible teachers, Jackie Hill Perry, and she did a seven-week uh, training on the book of Jude. You can get this online. You can find it. I believe Lifeway published it. Uh, so this is like a book that you can get. She also has some videos that goes along with it. And honestly, like there's, there's not a ton of great resources that I've found on the book of Jude, to be honest with you. There's a handful. And this is one of the best. This is one of the most accessible accessible, most helpful. So we're only going to be in this book for four weeks, but if you want to go a little bit deeper, 
if you are like really intrigued by this bizarre book and want to learn more, uh, or maybe you're really offended, which I'm sure we're all going to have our chance to be offended at this book, uh, then, then this will be a good chance for you to kind of go deeper and learn. So I want to let you know about that resource. And if you're uh, really wanting to nerd out and you want some more resources, email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com and we'll send you uh, all, of our, all of our recommendations to go deep in this book. Sound good? All right, no one cares about that. All right, that's, that's, that's what I figured, but that's okay. All right, let's take a second and let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to jump into this book and to study your word and to sit under it. And I just, I pray today that you would shape and form us as your people. I pray specifically for your people today that you would help us know what it looks like to contend for the faith. Help us know what it looks like to actually fight for our own hearts to abide in your love. And I pray today that there'd be that weird mixture of us learning what it looks like to rest and abide in your love and you actively holding us and keeping us. And as much as we want to contend for the faith, we want to thank you that you're contending for us, that you've contended for us in your life and in your death and in your resurrection. So Holy Spirit, come and move today. And for the ones in the room that are just trying to figure out where they stand with you, where they stand with Christianity, where they stand with the church. I pray that you would meet them with your love today. Help them learn and grow and really think about these deep things that we're wrestling with. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2018, Laura Young walked into a Goodwill in Austin, Texas, and she stumbled across the sculpture that was sitting on the floor underneath the table. And she found the sculpture to be interesting, so she bought it for $34 and 99 cents. And there's this photo of her where she puts it in her car, she buckles the sculpture literally in her front passenger seat and drives home with it with the, the price tag just kind of haphazardly slapped on the side. It wasn't until later when she got home and started to examine a little bit more about this that she realized that this isn't just like some like new sculpture, but in fact, this was an ancient Roman bust of the son of Pompey the Great that had been lost for at least 2,000 years, right? And what's so crazy about this, this was somewhere between the first century BC and the late first century AD, officially it was dated, and how it got to Austin, Texas and all of that is absolutely bizarre. I don't have time to get into it with you, but how crazy is that, that this ancient treasure was just lost in plain sight, just sitting there in a goodwill. It's now in a museum for everybody else to see. And stories like this, I've always found fascinating of treasure or something of value that's just sitting there in plain sight and lost. I've said this story before, but it's too good to not share again. In 1991, there was a flea market enthusiast that went to a flea market and found this, uh, this art piece that he didn't really like the art piece at all, but he liked the frame that the art piece was in. So he bought this art piece primarily for the frame. He spent $4 on it. When he got home, he was trying to figure out if he could adjust the frame and maybe take the frame off, and the frame fell apart. And behind the frame, there was this ancient document neatly, perfectly folded up. And when he unfolded it, he realized it was a first century edition of the Declaration of Independence. He ended up selling it at uh, Sotheby's, had this uh, this deal where they sold it, and I think it, I have it down here, $2.4 million, right? That's a pretty good investment, $4 to get $2.4 million back. 
find the Declaration of Independence. And there's stories like this all over the place of something of great value just lost right out in the open. And here's why I share those stories with you is because in many ways, this is the story of the book of Jude. That the book of Jude is sort of like this treasure that's sitting there in plain sight in scripture, but it's been lost for most people throughout church history. And here's what's really interesting about the book of Jude is that most scholars would say that Jude is the single most neglected book in the entire New Testament. I grew up in church. I've been attending church since about nine months before I was born. And in church growing up, I don't recall ever hearing a sermon on the book of Jude. I've certainly never heard a series on this book. If anything, I've maybe heard one sermon over a certain text or passage in this book. And I bet that that's your story if you grew up in the church as well. We don't really know this book. And chances are, if you read it, you're a little bit confused by it, or at least I have been, because it's absolutely bizarre. Let me give you a few things to think about. First, who the author is and how this author introduces himself is absolutely bizarre. We're going to get into that in just a minute. Second, his approach and his writing style in this book is also really bizarre. He's assuming that his readers of this letter have a high, high understanding of their Old Testament. Like they are very well versed in their Old Testament and in other Jewish literature. In fact, one of the things that's fascinating about the book of Jude is that he quotes on two different occasions from something called the Pseudepigrapha. Some of you are like, bless you. Thank you for that. The the Pseudepigrapha is an ancient Jewish set of writings that kind of dates before the time of Jesus and after the time of Jesus. And Jude is going to quote from two of those. One is the book of Enoch, and the other is something called the Assumption of Moses or the Testimony of of Moses. It has two different titles. He quotes from those, and people don't know what to do with that. It's weird. He's quoting from extra-biblical Jewish literature. And then in addition to that, his content is bizarre. And it's not going to take you long uh, to see this. Next week, we might kill our church just by reading a section of the book of Jude. You might be like, I'm out. I can't handle this. Because in Jude, he has a lot to say about God's judgment against sin. He has a lot to say about Jesus himself actually destroying an entire group of people. And he uses the name Jesus. He has a lot to say, something about the archangel Michael fighting with the devil over Moses' dead body and a bunch of other really bizarre, really weird, really hard to understand things. And so if some of you are like, that freaks me out, hey, it freaks me out too, and I have the face mic, I have to teach this book, right? And some of you are like, this is weird. Yeah, it's super weird, but here's what's fascinating about this book. It only takes four minutes to read, and we're going to take the next four weeks to unpack it because this isn't just a bizarre book. This is a beautiful book. This is a book that's so timeless. It's almost as if like you don't have to change one single word about this book. You can drop it in our context in 2022, and it means just as much, if not more, to us today than it did when he originally wrote it 2,000 years ago. Crazy, amazing, beautiful book. So in light of that intro, let's jump in and work our way through line by line. Verse one, here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Who is Jude? That's the question. Who is Jude? Well, in Hebrew, Jude's name is Judah, 
And in Greek, his name is Judas. So that's literally his name. And you can understand why any Christian in the first century that had the name Judas at a, at a dinner party would be like, hey, my friends call me Jude, right? Uh, my, my, those closest to me, don't, they don't call me Judas. So just let's shorten it, call me Jude. And so going off of his name, we really don't know much about this character named Jude. All we know is really his name. And then he goes on and he says, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then here's the key. He says, the brother of James. Now we know when he says this, both from the New Testament and from church history, that there is only one famous James that was well-known. He led the church in Jerusalem, and that James happens to be Jesus's brother, James. So listen to this. This is fascinating. What we're learning both from the New Testament and from church history is that Jude is none other than the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's the biological brother of Jesus. They share Mary as a mom. We know that Jesus had four brothers, and we think he had some sisters as well, and Jude is one of those four brothers. Now, this is fascinating. Why not lead with that? Well, like, why not lead with that statement? Hey, I'm Jude. Jesus is my brother. Like, if I'm writing this letter, that's number one with the bullet, how I'm introducing myself. Hey, you should probably listen to me because you know the the one that the Bible says holds all things together by the word of his power? We shared a bunk bed growing up. Like, he's my brother. Uh, Mary is my mom too. Like, that's how I'm leading because I'm like, he's, you should listen to what I have to say. I know a little bit about this man that you call Jesus. And yet, he doesn't do that. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Why? Well, here's what's fascinating. What's happening here is giving us a little bit of info about both Jesus's true identity and Jude's true identity. And I think this is really key as we look at this letter. First, Jesus's true identity is kind of getting teed off here as the way that he's talking about this. Uh, Let me say it like this. I have five brothers and I have four sisters, lots of brothers and sisters in my house. And I love them all to death. They're all really unique. They're all really gifted in their own way. But I've never been tempted to worship any of them as God, ever. I've just never wanted to do that. And what's fascinating about Jude is Jude and James and the rest of Jesus's biological family, they never wanted to worship him as God either. We have clear evidence from the New Testament that Jesus's family, including his mom, thought that he was a little bit crazy. They thought that Jesus had lost his mind. And yet something happened after the resurrection of Jesus to where shortly after the resurrection, Jesus appears not just to the disciples in general, but specifically to his family as well. And one of the most incredible things is that James and Jude and the other family members of Jesus end up becoming leaders in the early church just weeks after the resurrection occurs. What that means is that for someone who grew up in a, in a, in a monotheistic culture like ancient Judaism to go from saying Yahweh is God to then all of a sudden in a matter of weeks worshiping their brother as the uncreated creator of all things and end up giving their life as martyrs to follow this Jesus as God tells us something about the true identity of Jesus. Jesus's little brother in this letter is going to say that Jesus is eternal, that he's existed for all time. In this letter, he's going to call Jesus divine. This is a really big deal and a powerful apologetic 
about the reality of the resurrection and the true identity of Jesus. In addition to that, it tells us something about Jude's identity. Uh, Jude does not say, Jesus is my brother. Jude says, I'm his servant. He's my master. And I love this about Jude because this is so much more than Jude just being humble. What's actually happening when Jude introduces himself as the servant of Jesus Christ is he's teasing out one of the themes of this entire letter, which is that when properly understood, our relationship to Jesus is not just marked by him being our friend or him being our brother or even him being our savior. All those things are true. But when you properly understand your rightly ordered relationship to Jesus, he is your master and we are his servants. He's not being humble here. He's being honest. He's saying, hey, I'm James' brother, but I'm actually his servant. He's my master. This is really profound, and there's going to be more about this unpacked as we work our way through the letter. That leads me to the second question. Who is Jude writing to? Who is Jude actually writing this original letter to? Something to remember in Scripture is that all that we have was first and foremost written to a specific group of people in a a specific place, in a context, with a language, and it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them first. We have to wrestle with what it meant to them before we can understand how it affects us today. Here's what he says at the rest of verse 1. He says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There are really two audiences at play here. The first is whoever he's specifically writing to. We think sometime in the middle of 60 AD, he's writing to a specific group of Christians. But what's challenging about this letter is we actually have no clue who he's writing to. We don't know if he's writing to a church or to a group of Christians or where geographically he's writing them. We don't know any of those details. All we know is that he's writing to Christians. And what's fascinating and helpful about that is that it's actually, in a sense, not just to that original audience, but in a broader, more real sense, it's also to us today. Because look at who he's writing to. He says, to those who are called, beloved, and kept. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story. You've been called, and you're beloved, and you're kept. This is our true identity. Jude, by the way, loves triads. You're going to see triads show up again and again, where he always wants to put things in groups of three. And here's how he does it, just right out of the gate. To those who are called, which is talking about our past. To those who are beloved, which is talking about our current present reality. And to those who are kept, this is pointing to our future when Jesus is going to make all things new and fully restore the kingdom to this earth. Think about those words, that you and I, if we're a follower of Jesus, we're the called ones. What that means is that from the very beginning of Scripture until today, God is the initiator. He is the lover. He is the pursuer. God is the one who calls. And what that means is you and I are the ones who respond. You and I are the loved. We're the pursued. We're the ones who are responding to his initial initiating call. But it's not just that we're called, we're beloved by God. I love it. We're not just slaves in his house. It's not just that he's our master, but because of the work of Jesus, you and I have brought in not to be tolerated by God, but to be sat down at the table as adopted sons and daughters of this father. That you and I are beloved. Doesn't matter what's going in your life, going on in your life right now. You're beloved in God if your hope is in Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, to those who are kept. 
And this is one of the major themes of the book of Jude, is that it's not just my grip on him, but it's primarily God's grip on me that counts. It's not just my hold on him. It's not just my faith and my ability to contend. It's really his ability to hold tightly onto me. One of the most incredible things to think about if you're a Christian is that your story is one where Jesus is actively keeping you. He's keeping your faith. He's keeping your heart. He's keeping your love. While we were singing today, I was just going through my story, thinking about all the ways that God has kept me in the faith. All the times where I can look back and go, I've failed. I've blown it. I wanted to walk away. I've had a a loose grip at times. Sometimes I have let go, and yet Jesus in his mercy, he's kept me. And that's our story. Like, it doesn't matter what's coming for you. It doesn't matter who gets elected next. It doesn't matter what happens to your bank account. It doesn't matter what happens in your singleness or in your marriage or in your family. If your hope is in Jesus, you are called, beloved, and kept. This is the good news of Jude. Hey, I love it. Y'all can celebrate that. That's amazing. This is the beautiful story that Jude wants to start with. And then I love how he turns in verse two. Notice this. He says, may mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. Another triad, mercy, peace, and love. And I I love that he says multiplied. He's not like, I don't want it to just be slowly infused like tea in a teapot. I don't want to just slowly be added to you. I want mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to you. Now, this is really important. You need to remember those three words, mercy, peace, and love. Do you know why? Because Jude has a lot of hard things to tell us. And at times we want to clap and celebrate, but he's about to say some things that we're going to want to like be deflated by. There are times where you're going to read Jude and go, that's incredible. But for the most part, you're going to read Jude and go, that's really hard to swallow. And what you need to remember is that Jude is writing from the Father's heart over you, which is that you are the called, the beloved, the kept, and his heart for you is that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to you. Read and hear and receive everything of this letter through that lens. Mercy, peace, and love. Amen? So in light of that, why is Jude writing this really beautiful and bizarre letter? Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is not the letter that Jude wanted to write. This is not the letter that Jude intended to write. Jude sat down, and what he wanted to do was to write to these people, this church or these Christians, just soaring about this salvation that God has worked for his people. He wanted to keep going on. He wanted us to keep celebrating. He wanted us to keep applauding. He wanted to write down 25 verses of doxology celebrating the finished work of Jesus and his story of redemption, how he's making all things new. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to take the good news of the gospel like a diamond and walk through the room and just hold it up for us to see and turn it and let us look at different sides of it and admire it and celebrate it. But unfortunately, that's not what Jude is doing in this letter. Something else was demanded of him because of his love for this actual church. And here's what's fascinating is that when you think of the church, the church on the one hand is always a mixed bag because she's always beautiful, but friends, she's always broken. She's always loved, but she's always messy. 
And that's going to be the story until Jesus returns. And so Jude's looking at this church and he's saying, I want to write this letter to you, but knowing what's really going on, love is demanding a very different response. 25 verses that don't sing like the doxology, but 25 verses of something very hard to hear. Sometimes you go to the dentist for a routine teeth cleaning and you end up getting a tooth pulled. It's what love demands. Sometimes you go into the doctor for a routine heart scan and you get laid out on the table and have your chest ripped open and have open heart surgery. It's what love demands. Let me say it like this. Uh, my wife is absolutely amazing. We're, uh, we've been married for 14 years, and our friendship is the thing I value most about our marriage. She is, she, I love her to death. I, if I could spend all my time with her and no one else, I would just live as a, as a recluse with her in the woods. That would be amazing. Uh, unfortunately, I can't do that. That's like, I guess, my retirement plan. And, uh, and there are times where just I, I miss my family when I'm at work, and I'm like, man, I can't wait to come home and hang out with her and be the fun dad. You know, I've got 10, 8, and 4 is the age group in my house, two girls and a boy. And I'm like, I want to come home and be the fun dad. I've missed my kids. I've been gone all day. It's so fun to come home and be the fun dad. And there are times where I leave work with that intention, and I open up the door, and my wife has that crazed look in her eye. Do you know what I'm talking about? And she'll say, take these demons away from me. And then I realize, like, I can't be the fun dad. Love is demanding a different response from me right now, you know? And it's like she's handing the children to me as I walk in the door. And so here's my point is there are times where true love demands a different response. And Jude is coming to this church and he's like, I can't wait to be the fun pastor. And then he sees what's really going on and he's like, love is demanding a different response. And I think this is so key for us today in our culture because what's happened in our culture is that love has been co-opted and redefined by our culture. And it no longer means love is defined by Jesus and agape and the New Testament. It now is love as defined by what our culture says. And love is defined by culture as if you really love me, you'll have unquestioned acceptance for everything that I've decided for myself. If you really approve of me, if you really love me, then you're going to look me in the eyes and you're never going to tell me that I'm doing anything wrong. You're going to pat me on the head and say, you're just fine. You do what you want to do. And actually, friends, what I want you to see is our culture may have that definition of love, but the God who is love has defined love differently. And at times, love demands not a kind word, but a harsh word. Sometimes love demands a clear word. Sometimes love demands you to to raise your voice at the child who's running towards the street so that they don't get hit by the car. Sometimes love demands a very different response that in the moment you might not go, that felt really loving, but when you come to your senses, you go, that person loved me enough to say the hard thing. Jude is modeling for us a level of Christian maturity about love where he's looking this church in the eye and he said, I wanted to write this letter to you, but I had to write this letter because I love you. What's really going on is super important for me to address, right? So what's going on? Well, it's really fascinating that if you think about the church and its history, there's been all kinds of external threats from day one that have tried to snuff out the church. You have external threats like the Roman Empire. The first 300 years was crushing the church, trying to uh, cause the church to go extinct. You fast forward in history, and you've got things like Marxism and fascism. If you think about what was happening in World War II with the Third Reich and what they were doing in Germany with the church there and what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to do in response to the the government uh, and how they were trying to shut down the church and 
uh, uh, change and tweak the theology of the church. I mean, the church has faced all kinds of external dangers throughout its history, and all those things are real, but here's the irony, is virtually every external danger that the church has ever been threatened by has caused the church to go deeper and more resilient. It's actually caused the church to become more vibrant and more healthy over time and more mature, and yet, here's the biggest danger that the church faces is not primarily from external threats in our world. Do you know where the greatest danger is often happening in the church? It's when we lower the drawbridge from within and something gets twisted and distorted from inside the church. This is the greatest enemy that you and I have. It's not external, but it's us. It's internal. Notice what Jude says in Jude verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. It's a hard word. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, here's the issue. It's not that there's been external threats. It's that certain people have crept in unnoticed. It's that we've lowered the drawbridge from within. Something is happening internally that we need to address. And this should not surprise us because warnings like this are littered all over the New Testament. Jesus, in his phenomenal Sermon on the Mount, the most important, I think, the most important section of the entire New Testament, says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Acts 20, the Apostle Paul, who spent three years in Ephesus training and doing ministry, says these words, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul had seen revival. He'd been there for three years doing ministry. And he says, I know the second that I leave, here's what's going to happen. Internal threat. Here's another one, 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Happy Mother's Day. I feel for uh, Pastor Josh Curry. He's currently downtown preaching the second week of Jude, and when you read it, it's bizarre. Like, I, it's not a happy Mother's Day downtown today, so we get the better, we get the better section today. Now, here's something I want you to see as we move our way through this story here, is that this is not Jude's external critique of the world or the culture. Do you understand that? Like, this is not Jude trying to stir up the people of God into rah, 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 let's raise our fist and go fight against the world. This is not an external threat at all. In fact, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think what is really helpful for you to see is that Jude is not writing to you at all. He's actually writing to those who profess faith in Jesus. He's writing to those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And he's not trying to create a group of heresy hunters that are looking external to the church so that they can shoot people. He's trying to create a group of Christians who take their own personal faith seriously enough to do some self-assessment of themselves. That's what's happening. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you would raise your hand and say, I profess faith in Jesus, this is for you. If you're going to take communion later today, this is for you to wrestle with. This is an internal critique. He's asking you to do some internal assessment. 
He mentions two ancient cancers that have been eating away at the body of Christ from the inside out for the last 2,000 years. Look at it in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who, what? What are they doing? Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. This is the first thing that Judah's writing about is the distortion of grace. The distortion of grace. Now, before you can really understand the distortion of grace, you have to start with the scandal of grace. Before you can see where grace goes wrong, you have to see grace rightly. And where grace is rightly understood, it's not penance, but it's free forgiveness offered by our Father. Grace is not earning, it's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God at the expense of Jesus Christ. Grace is not self-righteousness that we bring to him and offer him, but it's the gift of perfect righteousness that Jesus gives to us freely. Grace isn't our morality, but it's the power of Jesus And his perfect life lived in our place. Grace is not paying off your debts, but it's a perfect sacrifice in your stead offered up by God himself. Grace isn't the offer to become a forgiven slave or just a pardoned convict or something that God can't barely stand to have around, but because I've forgiven you, you can stay in the house. Grace, when it's rightly understood, is the offer of adoption. It's to be a son and a daughter. It's to have an entirely new identity, to take everything in your story that you want to go away and for God to actually redeem it and rewrite it and bring you in as a son or a daughter. This is what grace is. When you're hungry, it's the grace of God that feeds you for free. When you're naked, it's the grace of God that clothes you for free. And when you're guilty, it's God's grace that pardons you for free. This is offered to anybody. It's offered to anyone at any time, no matter what they've done because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. There's not one single crime against God or humanity that the blood of Jesus cannot forgive, redeem, and heal. That's the grace of God. But grace gets distorted when it goes from free grace to cheap grace. When grace transitions to something called cheap grace, it ceases to be grace itself. Uh, in his really important book, The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the difference between actual grace and cheap grace. And here's how he defined cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So when grace, or what we might say today in our culture, when the love of God becomes a license for you and I to do whatever we please, we have distorted grace into something that it's no longer grace. And this is what Jude is writing about. And I want you to notice what grace actually does. The apostle Paul says this in Titus 2, He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, but don't stop there. Look at what grace does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and 
to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace is so disruptive that it doesn't actually help you become more comfortable with sin, but it trains you to renounce it. It actually strengthens the line between good and evil. It doesn't erase it. When properly understood, grace is power to fight sin, not to cozy up with it and get comfortable with it. Grace helps you grow to the place where you hate sin and want to be different. And that leads to the second thing happening. It's not just the distortion of grace, but notice in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and what? And deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And that's the second thing that Jude is writing about is denying of Jesus, the denying of Jesus. And here's what's fascinating. Jude isn't writing primarily about a theological denying. He's not saying they have theological things that they believe that are heresy. They're against historic orthodoxy. He's actually saying by the way they live, they deny Jesus as master and Lord. By the way that they live, there are tenets that they profess to believe, and they're denying those tenets with their actions. He's not mincing his words. He's saying, if you fail to obey Jesus, you do not follow Jesus. If you fail to obey Jesus, you're, you're not actually in the, walking the hard path of discipleship behind Jesus. Clyde Snodgrass, in his really important book on identity, says, let's get something straight from the beginning. If you do not act like a Christian, you're not a Christian. Yes, I'm willing to die on that hill. There is no such thing as an identity that does not act. If you do not treat people, especially spouses and other family members, from and with Christian virtues, then there's serious doubt that you are a Christian. And no, I don't believe in salvation by works, but I do know that faith involves attachment to and participation with Christ. And if, and if that is the case, you cannot be attached to Christ without acting in accord with his character to some large extent. Identity informs behavior. So one of Jude's themes here, friends, is we often distort grace into something it's not. And in so doing, we deny Jesus as our master because, friends, he's not just your brother. He's not just your friend. He's not just your pal or buddy. He is king. He is master. He is Lord. And he's demanding your whole self allegiance to him. It's by grace, but he wants all of you. And so what's the call on the church? And I'll close with this. Well, here's what Jude is pleading for them to do and for us to do 2,000 years later. He says this in verse 3. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The invitation in this whole letter is Jude trying to look at us, grab us by the shoulders and say, I'm wanting you to contend for the faith. And he's gonna unpack in the next section of this letter uh, why you and I need to contend. And then he's gonna end the letter by showing us how we contend, but I want you to realize that contending for the faith is not us fighting other people outside in the world. It's us taking responsibility for our own discipleship by the grace of God. Contending for the faith is actually taking responsibility for our own discipleship by the grace of God. And so I'm closing with this three dynamics of the faith once delivered, three things that we need to learn how to contend for and how to guard and how to fight for and how to assess ourselves in. The first is belief, 
And this is the doctrinal substance of the faith. There are certain things that Christians believe. Uh, there's a commentator by the name of Douglas Moo. He says it this way. The point that Jude is making is obvious. There is a set of beliefs based in the teaching and work of Christ, developed and passed on by the apostles, that is non-negotiable. To be a Christian is to agree with these beliefs. To reject them is to cease to be a Christian. The first thing that you and I need to realize is that to be a follower of Jesus is that you and I have received a faith once for all delivered. It's a body of beliefs that there are certain things that make that list that if you do not believe those things, then you're inherently not believing what it means to be a Christian. Does that make sense? There's belief. It's the doctrinal substance of faith. The second one is obedience. And this is the moral substance of faith. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe. It also matters what you do with that belief and how that shapes your behavior in conjunction to your belief. Or another way to say it is this. How you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. How you live is the most reliable indicator of what you believe. So belief, obedience, which is the moral substance of faith, and then the third thing is love. And this is the relational substance of faith. Love that flows both ways, from God to us, undeserved, unconditional, that disrupts and changes us in a way where we love God back and we love others with this unconditional love and response, even those we might consider our enemies. And when you take one of these three things out, the leg of the faith once delivered, I'm sorry, the stool of the faith once delivered falls over. You need all three legs. You need belief, you need love, and you need obedience. And I think the struggle for you and I is that often we want one without the other two. I want to believe things, but I don't want to behave a certain way. I want to live a certain way, but I don't want to be empowered by love to do so. I want to love people, but I don't want to have a set of beliefs and level of obedience that I I connect to my belief and my actions. So friends, look at these three things. And over the next three, four weeks, I just want you to ask yourself, where am I being invited to grow? If I'm a follower of Jesus, which of these three things do I need to grow in? Do I just need to learn more about what Christians actually believe? Do I need to shore up the disconnect between belief and my behavior? Where do I need the love of God to empower me to love him and love others well? 